in our network, we don't have a ton of accredited investors. So I think one of the things um, regarding the scrappiness was we were kind of forced to be scrappy because I knew that as a first-time founder, as a woman, as a person of color, as someone with not a lot of high net worth individuals in my own personal network, it was going to be really hard for me to raise a seed round, particularly without a ton of traction. When Denise Woodard launched Partake Foods, it was the epitome of scrappy. Her SUV was the distribution network, her living room was the fulfillment center. Even when Jay-Z became an investor, yes, that Jay-Z, the global superstar hip-hop artist, it didn't change the hustle. She stayed lean. In this episode of Brand New Blueprint, Denise shares lessons from her scrappiness hall of fame. Welcome to the second season of Brand New Blueprint, a podcast by Smoketown. I'm your host, Ryan Pintado-Vertner. This podcast is all about finding new ways to build brands that can change the world. We hear directly from founders and CEOs, and we don't wait until they're already successful and worth zillions of dollars. We hear from them right now while the paint on the blueprint is still wet. And who is Smoketown? Smoketown is a boutique consultancy that improves the growth potential of emerging brands with better marketing strategy, outsourced marketing staffing, and best-in-class consumer research. In other words, we're nerds about this stuff. Here we go. Denise, welcome to Brand New Blueprint. Thank you for having me, Ryan. I'm excited to be here. I'm super excited to have you on the show. You've built an incredible brand with a really uh, powerful story to tell that a lot of the folks in our audience are going to be inspired by. And not only that, you've got an Instagram feed full of the most adorable family ever. Thank you so much. Yeah, my daughter is the mission behind Partake, so we make, make sure to keep her front and center in everything that we do. Yeah, and and let's actually start there. So let's op, you know, let's assume that most people in the audience have not necessarily heard of of Partake, and uh, so why don't you just take a minute and and introduce yourself and introduce the brand? Sure thing. So I'm Denise Woodard. I'm the founder and CEO of Partake Foods, and we make delicious, nutritious, allergy-friendly snacks. And some of the backstory on Partake is I have a daughter now who is five. Um, but right around her first birthday, we learned that she has several food allergies. So she's allergic to tree nuts and corn and eggs and bananas. Um, and so needless to say, it was quite challenging to find snack options for her that tasted good, that I felt good about nutritionally, and then for lack of better terms, had coolness factor. I pictured her feeling isolated and anxious about not being able to join in on all of the fun social events that include food. And then I pictured her feeling even more anxious and self-conscious when she pulled out this allergy, like weird allergy friendly snack. And she was a weird food allergy kid with the weird food allergy stuff. Mm -hmm. I was like, why can't there be a brand that makes products that taste good, that are better for you, but that has a brand ethos and packaging that's warm enough and celebratory enough and and cool enough that a quote unquote normal person would also be willing and interested in partaking, uh, pun intended. And so had the idea in the summer of 2016, we officially launched with three SKUs of cookies in the summer of 2017. You mentioned the, the, the pun intended. And one of the things that I really do love about the way your your brand comes to life and and executes is that all the way down to the name 
you're clearly evoking what it is, like the benefit that you're trying to deliver for people. Definitely. And when we started the brand, it was all about people with food allergies or on a restricted diet being able to participate and have a seat at the table. But as a woman and a person of color, um, I've learned that there's also a lot more that Partake stands for. And so there's so many people who have been willing to support the brand because we're woman-owned or minority-owned, and then they chase the product, and they're like, oh, wow, this actually tastes like a normal cookie, and they stick around. So our entire brand is all about inclusivity. Yes. So the brand was inspired by your daughter's food allergies and that is a, a, that like drives the heart of the brand the soul of the brand which comes through so well and you know not to gush about how gorgeous you guys are but on top of that like you you are um an amazing family to represent the brand however the other thing that had that that I, I'm super uh, intrigued by with you guys is that you also come at this with some real CPG experience, which is not necessarily the norm in the world of early stage brands. So do you want to talk a little bit about like what, what your career was prior to the aha moment and the, and the, the go big choice with Partake? Sure thing. So I spent about eight years at Coca-Cola and the first few years I was there, I worked in various sales roles, but mostly supporting kind of the trademark Coke brands like Coke, Diet and Sprite. Um, And then in 2014, I moved over to their Venturing and Emerging Brands group. So I got to support brands like Honest Tea and Zico Coconut Water that Coke had either invested in or acquired. And I led everything non-brick-and-mortar retail. So bringing Honest Kids to McDonald's Happy Meals or Zico Coconut Water to Tech Workplace. And so with that opportunity, what I was able to see and what really pushed me to start Partake was, you know, I had a chance to interact with Seth Goldman from Honest Tea and I read Mark Rampola from Zico's book and I was like, these are just regular people who saw a problem and a need and did something about it and created a solution and really gave me the confidence to go out on a limb to start Partake. That also means that you really kind of knew what you were signing up for in terms of the Kinda. Level of I worked right? in a venture group at Coke, but now like look and it felt so entrepreneurial at the time. But then becoming <laughs> a real bootstrapped entrepreneur, right. I realized that they have a lot of money and resources that I do not still don't have. Um, but definitely did give me like baseline CPG knowledge in terms of the acronym deck dictionary that's required to, to kind mm-hmm. of be in this space. Yeah, yeah. And so let's talk about what those early days were like uh, when you when you initially founded the brand. Like what 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 was your what what was that experience like for you? Sure. So I spent between the summer of 2016 and the summer of 2017 moonlighting. So like every early morning, late night, all the weekends working to find a co-packer, a product developer, come up with a name and and packaging and then in August of 2017, I left Coke and started Partake. We launched with those three SKUs of cookies that I mentioned. We were totally bootstrapped outside of a Kickstarter campaign. So literally, there wasn't any fanfare or big launch party. It was me driving up to a storage unit that was across the street from my house, loading up the back of my SUV with cookies. And then I curated this list of about 50 natural food stores in the New York, New Jersey area by visiting competitors' websites and 
visiting those stores, just door to door, day after day, um, and then going back in the evenings to do demos to understand who our consumer was, why they were buying our product, if anyone besides my family thought that this was a good idea. And that really made up the next year from the summer of 2017 to the summer of 2018. And then we went in our, into our first distributor account, which was Whole Foods Southwest region in June of 2018. But up until that point, it was just me in my SUV on the streets of New York. I can totally picture it, like d double parking and, you know, <laughs> yeah, trying to so figure many out parking it. tickets. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know about the, the Kickstarter campaign. What was that experience like for you? Like I, I hear mixed things, like some folks Kickstarter is an amazing uh, kick start <laughs> to, to, to be totally obvious for others. It's uh, not, not quite what they expected. How was it for you? Definitely wasn't what we expected. I think I I didn't think about the consumer that lives on Kickstarter, and it's not necessarily the health-conscious food allergy mom. And so we ended up finishing the campaign with $30,000 worth of support, um, which was great and exceeded our goal. However, most of that support was garnered from my husband and I having to go back and beg every single person that we'd met in our right. life to support this. And then I didn't um, calculate all the, the shipping and everything properly. Yes. So we probably broke even at best. So, yes. you know, it was, it was an interesting tool. I don't know if I, if I was to go back and do it again, if I would do it. Right. Yeah. The two things that I hear a lot about Kickstarter are exactly those two uh, challenges that you faced that it is, it looks and feels a lot more like a friends and family round than than it initially seems like it should be. And then that the cost of fulfilling whatever the promise was is it can be more than expected. Definitely so. Yeah, yeah. So early days, you've got um, boxes and boxes of you know product in your SUV. Uh, you are the distribution system, and uh, that gets you to uh, the the threshold of being able to open your first distributor and start to to get to some scale. But my sense is that even at that stage, once you were no longer the sole distributor personally, you still had to be really scrappy. Oh my and goodness! Yeah, is that is that fair? Definitely so. And it, it, one thing that I'm, I'm always struck by is not every founder necessarily chooses the same level of scrappiness. So there are some companies who at, at your stage when you, you know, got a distributor and you, you opened, you know, 30 or 40 doors, whatever that was with Whole Foods, that would be their trigger to go raise a seed round. Others choose not to do that and they're they're going to push out the initial raise as far as they can sort of muster what was your orientation to that did you how, how did you approach when to like for how long the bootstrap we were kind of in the middle so that summer of 2018 we brought on 43 whole foods and then we also brought on wegmans later that summer so i did realize that cpg is expensive and if we wanted mm -hmm. these accounts to be successfully launched, we were going to need some more capital other than my family. So we then started to go out to raise a convertible note from friends and family. But we um, 
in our network, we don't have a ton of accredited investors. So that yeah. was a slog to try to get that done. So I think one of the things um, regarding the scrappiness was we were kind of forced to be scrappy because I knew that as a first-time founder, as a woman, as a person of color, as someone with not a lot of high net worth individuals in my own personal network, it was going to be really hard for me to raise a seed round, particularly without a ton of traction. And also, I wanted to preserve as much equity as I could um, for myself and my family. So I wanted to go into those accounts and make sure that they were success and then hopefully go out and raise a seed round after that once we had some more traction that we could use to hopefully leverage a, a better deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you mentioned the the network that you had access to, which is again, one of those hidden aspects of what it takes to be successful early stage that is not necessarily in a playbook somewhere, but you, you, you sort of discover it, especially when you look like you and I. And tell me more about where you're from. You know, where were you born? Like, what, 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 t- tell, us, tell us that part of your story. Sure. So my background is um, I'm, my dad's African-American, my mom's Korean. My dad was in the military um, for about 10 years and, and met my mom when he was stationed in Korea. They now live in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is where I grew up. And so um, ever since I was a toddler, my dad was an over-the-road truck driver and an entrepreneur. So initially he drove a truck for someone else and he'd be gone for weeks at a time, like driving across the country. And then he was able to save up enough money to buy his own truck and then thereafter that buy other trucks. And so you know, I think that was one of the reasons they weren't excited about me starting Partake because they knew firsthand how hard it was or is to be an entrepreneur. Um, but I think, you know, my parents definitely instilled in me the value of a strong work ethic and education. Neither of them, my dad got his GED when he was in the army and my mom had to drop out of high school when she was um, because of the Korean war. So it's really important for them that I went to college, that I got what they deemed an acceptable um, corporate stable career. And then when I called and said, you know, I really think there's this gap in the marketplace and I think I'm going to start an allergy friendly snack company to say that they were um, not excited would be an understatement. Um, (laughs) And because of, you know, the situation that I grew up in, I, I don't want to make it seem like I ever wanted for anything. Like we were middle class, like we went on a vacation and stayed at the Holiday Inn and, you know, drove across country for vacations, but we went on vacations and, and like my parents did the best they could to, to provide me a really great childhood. But there wasn't a bunch of extra and they definitely, I couldn't call them and say, Hey, mom and dad, I'm going to start a company. Can you write me a check? And similarly, my, my husband's in the same situation. So us pulling together a friends and family round was a lot of going to our former colleagues, um, cobbling together five and $10,000 checks. Like we, our goal was to raise $400,000 and we were able to do it, but it was never at one time. It was like, okay, I got 7,000 this week. Okay. We got 10,000 this week. And it was just piecemealing it together. Right. Right. And that's actually quite a, first of all, like, thank you for telling the, the fuller story. Uh, and, and I'll say that, that $400,000 is a pretty solid round, thank especially you. if it's five and $7,000 at a time. That is a lot of fundraising. 
there was also a lot of pitch competitions. That was our other oh, trick. Good. Uh, every Monday morning, I would do Google searches. It's like some of the pitch competitions just don't want to be found, but I would <laughs> try my darndest to, to find them, and we were able to raise about $75,000 through winning different pitch competitions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. And yet, scrappiness was still the requirement. And mm-hmm. so as you think about uh, what you did when you were in like that scrappy mode, are there some things that, that you would put in like the scrappy hall of fame? You know, you look back on it and you're like, that was an amazingly good way to be scrappy. Um, let's think about that. I, I think everything we did initially was extremely scrappy. So from a brand ambassador and demo perspective, I'd heard so many brands say like, you know, demos are so expensive, we can't do them. Well, my brother-in-law was living at home with his parents at the time. And so we paid him to go drive around in like an old beater van across the entire Southwest region of Whole Foods and do demos every single day. Um, and, you know, he was sending pictures and we were getting really good data from the portal, whereas a lot of my colleagues were, you know, working with these like very fancy uh, outsourced mm-hmm. agencies and paying like three times as much as we were paying for demos. So I, I think that was one way that we were able to get to to our velocity goals in the Southwest region in a pretty cost effective manner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is one of those examples that you know everyone has the. I, sh- I shouldn't say that many people have the ability to choose that extremely um, cost-effective way to execute demos. Um, but you're right that there you know, is a pretty well-established infrastructure that makes it easy to execute demos without um, bootstrapping it or without uh, uh, getting every penny to stretch. And it sounds like you guys figured it out. Yep. And a lot of the things we did, not necessarily out, well, out of scrappiness, but also because I wanted to know how to do it myself so that when we were to grow and scale and hire someone, I could see through the BS, I could understand how things should work or could work. And so even our e-com fulfillment, we didn't want to move that. We didn't want to outsource that. And so, gosh, we just started to outsource that um, in February of this year, actually. So up until then, me, my husband, my mom, when she was visiting in town, our nanny, we packed all the boxes. If you ordered something from Amazon or partakefoods.com, that was literally me packing that on a weekend night or a weekend, weekday evening. Wow. That is, and, and you're, you don't have to disclose like sales figures if you don't want to. You're a substantial business. We're doing hundreds of, or, like we're sending hundreds of things out the door. The reason we actually had to, to stop is because our building, we live in, in a high-rise apartment building, sent us a note like you were running a shipping and receiving business out of your apartment. <laughs> I was like, okay, maybe this has gone a little too far. And so we brought in a, a 3PL partner. But no, I was like, if I'm just going to be sitting around watching Netflix in the evening, and I don't know this is the right way to do things. It just kind of, I just innately like to do as much as I can myself. Yeah. And it sounds like part of that, both with the demo approach and with that, beyond being scrappy, part of your objective was to just get really close to the business fundamentals. Mm-hmm. I want to know the ins and the outs and how much, I like how every penny is spent and if there's ways we can cut back or if there's things that we should be changing. And if I'm not really close to it, there's, there's just no way for me to know. Mm-hmm. It, once you engage the 3PL, did you find that that baseline level of experience helped you 
vet, negotiate, evaluate the various 3PL options? Yes, it also allows me to provide lots of direction on how to and how not to, to mm. ship certain things. It also allowed me to see through, like, you know, they gave us certain shipping rates. And I was like, well, actually, I think we can negotiate better ones, better rates on my own. And they're like, no way. And just like the, the art of negotiation, we ended up negotiating better rates than our 3PL offered us for shipping. And so just, just always asking questions and probing and pushing and trying to negotiate kind of with or without COVID has just been the way that I've, I've always operated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about uh, another place where companies are often scrappy early in their life cycle is packaging design and branding, where, you know, they may start with 99 designs or, you know, some some other extremely cost effective option and then eventually pivot. What was your approach? Did you go like lean scrappy up front or did you make the investment early to get to the look that we see today? So we went through a rebrand in the summer of 2019. Our original packaging, we worked with a one-person agency out of Texas that had done some work for another brand I admired. So in the scope of things, like the grand scheme of things, I think fairly scrappy still, like, you know, mid-teens for a logo and all our SKUs of packaging and a few revisions on that. And then similarly, when we re um, rebranded our packaging this last year we you know I have these dream agencies that we worked with when I was at Coca-Cola but I know that I can't afford those and nor do I, I want to pay for that for that amount of money and so I went on LinkedIn and found folks that had worked at that agency at those agencies and I started sending one-off emails like do you do any freelance work <laughs> and so we ended up finding someone who worked at like it was a creative director at one of these agencies that I really admired had worked on and led projects for packaging design that I just love and she also does freelance work and so we ended up spending very similar to the amount we spent when we launched um, for our redesign you didn't you didn't you uh pick that one for the scrappy hall of fame but I'm just gonna like you know call an audible (laughs) and say that is definitely (laughs) scrappy hall of fame damn so we did that. And I guess also similarly, uh, product is development. I think everything we do is kind of, it's like, I just think that that's the normal way to do things. So I didn't name them for a scrappy hall of fame, but for product development, you know, we got these insane quotes from agencies and people who had worked in big CPG. And similarly, like the power of LinkedIn cold messaging, I think is often <laughs> underestimated. We found a woman who was like a dream on paper and has been like a godsend for us. And similarly, like, came in 70% less than so many of the other quotes that we got, but we were so happy with her work and we could still continue to work with her. I'm glad you mentioned that one uh, because a brand like yours that's making the promise that you're making simply doesn't get to get, get off the, off the starting blocks out of the starting blocks without tasting really, really good. And y'all have nailed that. So you have, you've got a, terrific product that it's easy to underestimate what it for outsiders looking in it's easy to underestimate what it took to get to that level of fit between brand promise and product execution and it's interesting to hear you say that part of the way you achieve that is you actually found someone who kind of like that's their core competency Mm -hmm. that's their core competency 
and they were willing to adhere to kind of my brand vision in terms of like these are the things we can use, can't use, this is how I'd like it to taste, this is what I'm thinking from a texture perspective and really believe in the product that I was hoping to create. Um, so, and I think honestly, that was just some luck that came our way. Like that was just like a big blessing that came to us because we went through, I don't know, probably 20 interviews. And I, I thought like, there's no point in bringing this product to market if it doesn't meet the promise of better ingredients and better taste than a lot of the other allergy friendly stuff out there. And so thankfully we were able to find somebody to help us execute against that. Yeah. So out of curiosity, was the, how, how quickly did you engage a product development person like were you you know batch making it in your house for some period of time or did you pretty early figure out that you needed to get some expertise involved pretty early so the story the real real story behind partake is the summer of 2016 um, my nanny, Martha, who actually now has a small piece of equity in the company, awesome. was like, your daughter's on a paleo diet. Like, you don't ever give her anything fun. And then I started telling her all my woes about how all the stuff doesn't taste good and the ingredients are terrible. And she was like, you should just start a food company. And Martha like kudos to her would then go to Whole Foods and come back with all these ingredients like let's try to make something let's do this and so we failed horribly but that's really like what got, gave us the kickstart at Partake started and I also gave me the kickstart to say we need a professional in here to help us mm. with this product development if we're going to make this into like I didn't want to do it if it wasn't going to be scalable right right kudos to Martha another godsend in our life like a lot of this i will say is just like luck along the way yeah yeah yes and also good listening on your part fair right because you fair. certainly could have heard her say that and 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 just reacted to it in a different way and we wouldn't be having this conversation um interesting okay got it so uh, let's kind of flip things. You've given us some amazing examples of ways that you've been scrappy uh, and and how that's paid off. I wonder if now, like hindsight being twenty twenty, if there are choices that you made that were scrappy that kind of in the medium or long run wound up just really not being the right the right decision that you would do differently if you had it to do over again. Honestly, I'm a big believer in like you learn along, like everything on your journey happens for a reason and, and you mm. learn the things that you do for, for whatever reason to serve you later in life. And thankfully, knock on wood, we haven't had any huge mistakes. I will say like while we were scrappy on things that weren't necessarily super consumer facing or where I felt like it didn't diminish the brand, there were some places where we invested, like we got all of the third party certifications we needed. We worked with a co-packer that we're just finally starting to grow into because we knew that we wanted like the utmost like safety in terms of production and allergen cross-contamination um, from like, I don't know, this is a simple one, but when you buy your barcodes, like the GS1 barcodes, we bought them legitimately from GS1 to start. Cause I was like, I want to turn this into a big company. And if I'm ever mm -hmm. going to get into Target or Walmart or wherever, I'm going to need to own. So there were some places where I was like I just I don't feel like we can cut corners and put our best face forward but any place where like it didn't diminish a customer's experience with our brand I cut corners and tried to be as scrappy as possible mm -hmm. yeah what what that also tells me is that well I guess it, it built into the the way you 
told the story from the outset, you knew from the beginning that this was going to be, at least in part, a brick and mortar business, as opposed to you know being digitally native and planning to get a, a certain distance uh, through e-commerce. Right, sounds right. That's correct. But I initially, initially, initially thought it would be digitally native. And what we found through like just like very rudimentary survey monkeying, allergy moms asking around in allergy moms Facebook groups was that. And I should have known this being a food allergy mom, like I want to see something on the shelf of trusted retailers. I want to be able to touch the box and turn it over and look at it. And you just don't get that same feeling when it, when the brand is just selling e-com. So I think also because of who our target consumer is, it, it was important that we went to a wholesale brick and mortar retail from the beginning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which led to a number of other choices, I would suspect, that probably informed the decision to buy barcodes, and it probably mm-hmm. informed the decision to get to a co-packer as soon as you could, because you you anticipated that you were going to be servicing hundreds, thousands of stores at some point. That was the goal, yeah. That was at least the vision, right? That was the vision, yep. Yeah. And I, I think, first of all, I'm proud of us for making it this far and not referencing COVID-19 at all. Like, you know, we should uh, uh, applaud that. And now, is now though, we can't avoid it because uh, it, one of the situations that a lot of founders find themselves in is whatever vision and expectations and hopes and dreams they had around raising financing has become significantly more challenging. And so that that question of the balance between growth and investment, uh, while always you know inherent to being to, to building a CPG startup, it's a tough call. But it's even more so now, I would argue. Um, here's something that I've I, I I've heard and and have thought about, and I wonder if you could sort of like put yourself in a time machine and imagine um, this approach. Do you think that if you had not had national ambitions, like let's say you had just started this and been fully content to have a Northeast regional business, would that have been um, financially viable uh, for you without the sort of significant capital raises that we're talking about? Or, or, or even at that sort of like reduced scale, the bottom line is that slotting is real you know, free fills are real and, and, and those things just preclude uh, bootstrapping. No, I think it would be possible just like in, not in theory, but like I, like looking back on things, particularly if you're really going to concentrate in one geographic area, I feel like it could be doable. Like you're not really going to be making any prof, like real profit and you're not going to be like paying yourself a ton, but like, could you keep the lights on and just have a regional business with no outside funding, I feel like you could. Right, right. But the, the, the trade-off in the math is the availability of, you know, after-tax profit or, or, pre, or you know, EBIT to mm-hmm. help sustain the family and to exactly. get it to make sense, get all that effort to make sense from a financial standpoint. Exactly. 
Exactly. And so that was one of the reasons that we went out and raised venture capital because we'd kind of exhausted as much as we were personally willing to exhaust. Like I sold my engagement ring. I emptied my 401k. I didn't take a salary for a long time. I think I started paying myself in the 40s last summer. Like I just like it, it was it's a grind. And so we won. I was willing to take the dilution to be able to build a team and I was the only full-time employee up until October of last year. So to be able to begin to hire, to really grow a scalable, sustainable business and also to be able to kind of sustain on a personal level, it was, it was necessary for us to take some additional outside capital. Yeah. 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 And and no shame in it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So that's actually a perfect segue. You've now taken outside capital. Do you want to, uh, you mind telling us that story of, you know, who you, and, and I'm, I'm thinking now in terms of, you know, you've already talked a bit about that, you know, uh, the friends and family round, but, but talk to us a, a bit about the additional capital that you've raised, who you've raised it from to the degree that you want to make that public, and we'll go from there. Sure. So that summer of 2018, we raised the friends and family round, and then we executed the same play that I'd executed in Northeast. So we went into Wegmans and Whole Foods, which are retailers that provide a ton of data and allowed us to demo. So we ran the same play, and I was like, well, if this is successful, then I think we have something on our hands. Because like, yeah, after the New York thing, like, are we just living in a fancy Manhattan bubble? Who knows if this (laughs) could really be a thing? Um, But after having success in Whole Foods Southwest and Wegmans, that gave me the confidence to want to really begin to scale the business more. Um, And that came with raising a a seed round. So fast forward another summer into the summer of 2019, we raised a million dollar seed round. It was led by Jay-Z's Marcy Venture Partners. Um, The factory, the early stage food and beverage fund that's based in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania came in, as well as um, some of my old mentors. Uh, My old boss at Coke was Chuck Chuck Muth, the the chief growth officer at Beyond Meat. He came in. um, And then some of the friends and family who'd come in previously also reinvested in that seed round. Yeah, yeah. So uh, amazing to get the chance, the the relatively rare chance to not just complete a seed round. We've done surveys and found that um, the majority of of early stage companies that are trying to raise don't actually even successfully close a seed round uh, for, for many years. So you not only achieved that, but you got a an investor, one investor in particular, whose name came and went there pretty quick, uh, who who likely had a pretty meaningful sort of intangible impact on the business, and that's Jay Z. Mm-hmm. What was that? What, what has that part of the journey been like? Surreal. It was crazy. Like we. Um, so we, we've been talking to, to Marcy Venture Partners for, for a while and, and really had thought about them as maybe a potential Series A investor, but things ended up coming together sooner, and they've been amazing partners to work with. And the three partners there, Shea Brown and Jay-Z and Larry Marcus, have extensive experience in building consumer brands and, and have just been like a wealth of knowledge for me. Um, and then I would be remiss if I didn't mention there was a ton of great press that came along with it, so that did have – some intangible and tangible effects on our business. So our e-com, you know, shot up 10,000% over the next like 60 days after that news hit. But then intangible, I think there were some retailers that we'd been talking to who, you know, were concerned with our lack of like outside funding and, you know, how do we know we can launch you in a ton of stores if you don't have any like real funding? Or I think um, the press and the kind of glitz and glam that came along with Marcy um, let those 
retailers to maybe also think we'd be willing to support that from a marketing and PR perspective. I think it opened a lot of doors from us for us from a business perspective, and then also just tangibly, immediately, we saw e-com sales just go through the roof. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So how did, we've spent a lot of time talking about being scrappy, and you, of course, are still being scrappy in many places, but I also would suspect that once you closed a meaningful, that, 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 seed, that, that seed round, especially considering how meaningful it was, that you started to identify some places where being scrappy in the same way was no longer important or no longer made sense. Can you um, help the, the founders in the audience think about what were some of those things that you've traded, or what are some of those th- places where you've kind of traded up, as it were, from the scrappy approach to some other things? Sure. So I think one is just getting the team built out. So we brought on a full-time director of operations and a full-time director of sales, Um, particularly our director of operations, just working so tirelessly to get systems in place and processes in place that will be really important as we continue to scale the business, which have now brought in in significant cost savings, um, you know, from a packaging ingredient standpoint, from just working more closely with our co-packer to to determine other opportunities there. So I think um, building out the team, um, being able to invest more in marketing, particularly this year as our um, footprint has grown. Like it was, you know, we did a lot of retailer specific regional campaigns in 2019. And in 2020, I think we'll have the opportunity because of the funding we've received, but also because our our retail footprint has grown to do some larger national campaigns, which is really exciting. Um, You know, I don't think these are not going to happen now because of COVID, but we had planned to invest in more um, events and experiential where we hadn't been able to do that in the past. And so a lot of the, the funding went to being less scrappy in our marketing approaches and then also starting to, to build out a core team. Yes. Yeah. And so let's actually uh, start to close out because I appreciate that you've got, uh, you've given us a, a, a lot of your time and, and uh, I've, I'm so thankful for that. It, let's talk about like some of the wins that you had here most recently on that note of, you know, bigger retail footprint. Uh, the future is, is looking even brighter. What's the latest? Sure thing. So we finished 2019 in about 350 doors, and this year you'll be able to find Partake in about 2,800 stores. So we just went into Target nationally. Um, We also just went into Fresh Market, Sprout, Whole Foods Northeast, and then we'll be adding um, several additional regions of Whole Foods in July. So we've been busy, busy, busy. Which is such good news, like a a brand that not only um, delivers on a, a need that's real, but does it in a way that's just as authentic and as uh, as as beautiful as can be. So I'm so happy to hear that, and I'm I'm also thrilled that uh, there's now two or three extra ways that I can, you know, get my hands on a box or two. Thank you so much. All right, hey uh, Denise, thank you so much for for joining the podcast. Of course, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Brand New Blueprint. If you want help or additional tools to apply what you learned in this episode, just text the word Blueprint to 66866. This podcast is a production of Smoketown, a boutique consultancy that helps emerging brands reach their growth potential. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe to get the latest one. And a big thank you to the regulars for the beats. Uh